Zach. This is round two. We are the MMA Cutmen. I'm Kevin Mendelson. That's Marcus Schmidley. And here are your MMA headlines of the week. Christiane Cyborg Santos, the former Strike Force women's champion, she's still suspended. She did not get her. She heard, had her appeal heard by the California State Athletic Commission. Uh, they were trying. She was trying to get it cut down from a year to six months. They said no. She's still suspended. She won't be back in action until at least December. Yeah, well, I don't think that should come as a surprise to a whole lot of people. You get busted for for taking steroids and your excuses to kind of just blame everybody else. I I don't know if she's the the kind of person that's going to have a whole lot of success getting stuff like this turned around. She's the best female mixed martial arts, you know, in my opinion, on the planet, and I think uh, when her suspension's up, she's not going to have a hard time proving that to people. Right now, however, she's going to have to sit out a while. Hopefully she can train up, and in a year's time, we're going to get to see Ronda Rousey against Cyborg. Now, the nice thing, though, about Christiane Cyborg was that she didn't come out and take the, uh, oh, I didn't mean to do, or I didn't take this knowingly, or make any kind of excuses. She came out and said, I made a mistake. Uh, you know, I screwed up and I put this stuff in my body. And that's, I think, why she was thinking that it would go, you know, be cut in half to six months. The commission just kind of looked at her and went, look, you, yeah, you made a mistake. Guess what? You're paying the full price for your action. Thanks for your honesty. Uh, we appreciate the apology as well, but you're going to go ahead and get a year. It's interesting. We live in a world where admitting you made a mistake gets you a year uh, in, in MMA purgatory and denying that you've either done something wrong or that a test failed you, as it was the case in Alistair Overeem's world, means that there's a good chance you're still fighting at your next uh, heavyweight title fight against Junior Dos Santos. I, I, I find that you know it's an ominous tone for us set that when people come forward and they admit wrongdoing, they get popped pretty hard. But a guy like Alistair Overeem, who you know we don't have any reason to suspect that he didn't test positive for steroids, otherwise there wouldn't be controversy, has found a way to wiggle himself into a situation where he's got UFC support, hasn't been pulled from that card yet. And, and you know, at this point, we talked about it last week, we were, we were ready to pull him from that card. A week went by, nothing happened. He may still end up fighting on that card. Just, just unique to see the parallel differences between those two. So what you're saying is, if Chris Cyborg had come out and said, oh, no, no, that wasn't me. It has to be a false positive. She would still be the Strike Force Women's Champion and may have had a fight recently as well. I don't know if that's the case for this main reason. Alistair Overeem makes the UFC a ton of money when he fights. That is, and, and, and also this, and, and this is going to come as a shock to a lot of listeners when, when, it, when they hear this. The Nevada State Athletic Commission, for anybody listening, makes money on live gates and pay-per-view numbers. That's an interesting bit of knowledge there. They make money, percentages, on live gates and pay-per-views. Meaning, if Alistair Overeem brings a lot of fans into the MGM Grand or Caesars Palace or wherever the fight's being held, and pay-per-view numbers are great because it's a heavyweight title fight, the Nevada State Athletic Commission loses money by not allowing Alistair Overeem to compete at the event. So, in a way they're going to be cutting off their nose to spite their face if they do the right thing. That's why there's a bit of a hang-up here. I don't know that a whole lot of people are aware of that situation. And and, and there's a conflict of interest there, and I don't know how it's going to be handled. I don't think a whole lot of people do. 
But it's interesting that that's a fact. And on top of it, Cyborg Santos fights in a organization that's, uh, you know, it's just walking dead. And I don't think anyone really cares what happens to her at this point. Yeah, the the UFC, or Zufa, excuse me, treat is, is treating Strikeforce like the quote-unquote minor leagues. You still have guys like Jorge Masvidal. You still have uh, Gilbert Melendez and Josh Thompson and uh, and Luke Rockhold competing there. But that's just because they don't feel that they're ready for, for the UFC. They can't make them the most money there. Well, there's plenty of major league fighters over in Strikeforce. You know that. Uh, I know that. Everyone else knows that that watches the Strikeforce fights. But the thing is, those guys are either contractually obligated to fight over there or they're just stuck because Dana White doesn't really feel like bringing them over. I don't, you know, Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson... Uh, Luke Rockhold, Jacare Souza, you, you can honestly tell me those guys don't want to fight against USC competition on USC cards? They'd love to, uh, you know, they would have loved to have been in a packed house in Sweden tonight. Uh, they'd have loved to have fought in, in the MGM Grand on, on a USC card, but they're not getting that opportunity. The Strike Force has become a superfluous act. I don't think anyone cares anymore. And Cyborg Santos doesn't make Dana White any money because he doesn't really like women's MMA. That's why there's a difference between the most dominant female specimen in all of mixed martial arts and the most physically dominant male specimen in all of mixed martial arts. It all comes down to money. Something else you may have missed this week. This just popped up a couple of days ago. The California State Athletic Commission in the news for another reason. They're giving fighters a chance at some point. Maybe we think, I don't know, the therapeutic use exemption. So basically, if if you're Alistair Overeem and you're popped for steroid use because it's over the legal limit, so you can still have your limit, but if it stays at a level playing field, you can appeal to the commission to get that uh, to get that license in order to still be able to fight. Nick Diaz, with his medical marijuana problems, I want to take an aside with this medical marijuana stuff. I don't smoke weed. I know plenty of people that do. I don't care if you smoke pot or not. Have fun. But unless your name is Kobayashi or or one of these guys in the, in the Major League Eating uh, competitions, weed is not a performance-enhancing drug. And feel free to tell me that I'm wrong on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the MMA Cutman. Nick Diaz, I understand he has ADD, and I'm sure that pot will, will mellow him out before a fight, but you, you want to have that controlled rage if you're going to be doing something like mix, mixed martial arts. You don't smoke pot before a fight to get amped up, to give you an advantage over somebody else. Here, Here's the other side to that coin, and, and I don't really have a whole lot to say on this subject because I think, frankly, it's a little bit ridiculous that the California State Athletic Commission is even doing this. If you or I go out to our car right now, and we go to our glove compartment, and we bring out a big, fat bag of weed, Woo! and we walk back to the studio, and in our way, we end up coming across a police officer. What happens in a situation like that? You throw the weed in a bush and run. Oh, what what actually happens in a situation like that? You get in some trouble, sir. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying it might be illegal to possess marijuana and potentially smoke it. That's interesting. I think if it's illegal this is to California, do something... This California, though. Well, agreed. And I know that there are medical marijuana, you know, cards and whatnot. I've seen enough entourage. I know how you get one of those things. But if it's illegal in real life... 
why isn't it illegal in mixed martial arts? Why is it okay for Nick Diaz to do something because he's got a medical reason to do it? Don't, I mean, look, I'm not going to make light of Nick Diaz's problems. He's obviously a guy who has social anxiety. Don't we all have issues? I mean, I, I could fabricate a reason with my various handicaps that I need medical marijuana. However, I don't because I, I guess maybe I have some sort of moral problem with it. And I'm not going to play that card as to why someone else shouldn't do it. That's a personal preference. However, the truth is, if you and I go out to our cars and grab marijuana and we get popped for it, bad things happen. So how is it that all of a sudden Nick Diaz isn't in trouble because he got busted and tested positive for having marijuana samples in his urine? You know, having having the right to do something and actually doing it, not telling people you were doing it, being lack, you know, having a lack of intelligence and then getting caught. You know, this whole thing to me smacks of, look, we want guys in California to feel comfortable about their recreational drug use. So we're going to pass a law that allows combat athletes to do whatever they do and they don't have to deal with the consequences and that's just how we're going to cover up trying to change the culture of mixed martial artists and what they do in their spare time. You don't have to smoke pot to be a successful fighter. Ask Carlos Condit what he does on his spare time. I mean, I, I guess my issue with this is that it's even being passed. You know, you want to pass a, a thing for TRT, be my guess. I, I'm sure there are guys that may actually need TRT. Here's the funny thing. It could take six months to two years to get any kind of passing of this amendment into a law in California. Well, it's something that I think everyone uh, is going to have to pay attention to. You know, executive director George Dodd is going to be trying to get this thing uh, taken care of so that it becomes California, you know, athletic commission law. And, and I, I, I don't really have a whole lot else to add on this. I, I, I understand that it's happening and I understand that there are people that would like to see marijuana, off a banned substance list. And I get that if there's any state that's going to be lenient about that kind of stuff, it's going to be California. I don't necessarily have to agree with it or like it, but I understand why it's happening. Hopefully this doesn't catch on. I don't really think we need all 50 states that legalize mixed martial arts or however many states that legalize mixed martial arts right now. We don't really need all of them making it so that fighters can, can get a high days before their fights because it's okay according to you know state athletic commissions i I, one state's one thing i'd hope that this doesn't spread okay and again if you have any uh any way or any thoughts to debate us with on this subject or anything else you can always hit our facebook page the mma cutman on facebook our last little bit for headlines this week hector i kill you he won't be doing that anytime soon. Alexander Shlomenko, uh, unfortunately, was in a car accident uh, this past week in Russia. Broken collarbone and a dislocated thumb. He's going to be out of action for at least six months. I'm a big fan of Alexander Shlomenko. I think he's got some of the most exciting kickboxing in mixed martial arts. I, you know, there's this idea that because he's in Bellator and he's a recent tournament winner that he's guy who could step into the UFC and compete against some of the best uh, middleweights out there. I don't know if I buy that, but he is 45 and 7. He's 7 and 1 in Bellator. And, and and there is news coming down that if Hector Lombard steps out of Bellator and is a free agent and decides he no longer wants to fight for the organization, that Alexander Slominko is going to be given a vacant title opportunity against someone else. And 
And that's an interesting situation for for Shlomenko, who just you know suffered a broken collarbone, uh, lacerations to his hand, and a possible broken thumb in a car accident. It, Bell, you know, it, let me ask you: If Bellator is an organization centered around having tournaments that dictate who fights for titles, why would they go out of their way to set this up like this? Well, it looks like they're giving uh, they're giving Alexander Slomenko, the season five tournament winner, his title shot that he has earned. And if Hector Lombard leaves, then that leaves them with an open title, and they've got a season six tournament going on right now. So then they would have. Two guys that have won tournaments that would be getting the title shot anyways. Uh, I, I don't know why Alexander Slomenko has not gotten his title shot yet. Maybe it's because of the of the contract hiccups w- with Hector Lombard. But there's your guy that was due a title shot to begin with. And then you're taking the next guy that's due a title shot. And boom, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting the two title shots out of the way, and you're filling a title vacancy. Is that a fight, though, that you want to see? I mean, honestly, do you want to see Alexander Slomenko against Brian Rogers, Bruno Santos, Michael Falco, or Vacheslav Vasilevsky? I mean, it, it, let's be honest. It, without Hector Lombard, this division doesn't have the same kind of pop. Are people going to tune in when... People aren't tuning in for Ben Askren. People aren't tuning in for all these other great fights. Do you want to sit down and watch a vacant title fight between the Season 5 champ and the Season 6 champ for the middleweight strap? Well, I would because I just want to see more fights. But unfortunately, the casual fan that's going to pop the ratings on MTV2 that's going to put more money in the Bellator coffers, probably not. But then, do we put the blame on Hector Lombard for refusing to accept a new deal? Well, no. I mean, Hector Lombard has to do what's in his best interest and what puts food on his family's table. I don't have any issue with Hector Lombard going, I've done all I can do in Bellator. There are no other challengers for me. At 30, you know, 31, 2, and 1, I haven't lost in Bellator. I'm 8, no. I want to fight UFC dudes. You know, that would be my thought process. He wants to graduate from the minor leagues to the big leagues. That's great. That's perfect. I guess I just don't understand... The thought process behind, we're just going to gift Shlomenko an opportunity when, A, he's just going to be getting back from all these you know, injuries, this, this car accident, drunk driver hits him, all that stuff. Can't we just kind of chill out? I mean, Bellator needs to just get through Season 6, get their ratings up, have these quality fights before they start making public statements that throw Hector Lombard under a bus. He hasn't even signed up for the UFC yet, and they're already saying, if he leaves us... We've already got Plan B in effect. I mean, if you're Hector Lombard, aren't you reading that going, Sweet, I'm out of here. Guess they don't need me very much. They've already got something figured out. I don't understand how that's good business for Bellator. Having Hector Lombard on your roster is a heck of a lot better than not having Hector Lombard on your roster. And that's round two. Those are your MMA headlines for the week. I'm Kevin Mendelson. That's Marcus Schmidley. We'll be back with round three. If you are going to be watching any MMA this weekend, we're going to tell you what fights you want to be looking for. Bellator's got a stacked card. The UFC returns to pay-per-view for their first time in about two months. We're going to tell you all about those cards coming up next. We're the MMA Cutmen. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is round three. We are the MMA Cutmen. I'm Kevin Mendelson along with Marcus Schmidley. What's up? How you doing? I'm pre- I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. You ready to uh, ready to get into some UFC and Bellator previews? Breaking down next week's fight cards. There's a ton of stuff to talk about. I'm excited. I think I'm more excited about Bellator 66. Maybe that's just because I love Bellator talk. But uh, a lot of good fights, and I think the headliner is just as good 
as the UFC 145 headliner. I think you're also a big fan of Japanese MMA, and Bellator 66 is going to be capped off by one of the biggest stars in Japanese MMA, Shinya Aoki. Uh, a rematch about three and a half years in the making with Eddie Alvarez. That's going to be a hell of a fight. I'm excited. I don't know if Eddie Alvarez is excited. Uh, I think the city of Cleveland is going to get their money's worth when Shinya Aoki goes in there, rips off Eddie Alvarez's foot, and says... Thank you, Cleveland. I done now. And that will be it. You will see. Uh, will he uh, walk in and go, hello, Cleveland? Uh, uh, Cleveland rocks. That might Cleveland be. rocks. Yeah. Oh. Drew, yeah. Carey, Drew Carey should be out here at Sounders games. He owns them. That notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, We've derailed. Eddie Alvarez is a really tough out. Uh, and I, I don't know if Shinya Aoki is the kind of guy who, yes, three and a half years ago he had success. This is a different Eddie Alvarez. He has about five more kids now. He's that much more motivated. And and I, I think that uh, not training in a cage is going to hurt Shinyaoki. I, I know he had a hard time with Gil Melendez. Gil Melendez, to me, is a better fighter than Eddie Alvarez. But Eddie Alvarez is just is, is a top five lightweight, in my opinion. Uh, and Shinyaoki is a top ten lightweight. So it's, it's one of those fights, rare fight, that we get to see that's not in a UFC or a Strikeforce card. Where you legitimately have two of the best guys on the planet competing, and, and their styles are so different. I'm so geeked for that fight. Now, what brought Shinya Aoki? Of course, we've seen him in Dream countless times. We saw him in Strike Force with Gilbert Melendez. What brings him from Strike Force down to Bellator? Is it just a sort of thing that Zufa didn't want to bring him back in, or he's doing this kind of on his own, or, or what's kind of the impetus for this? Well, I, I think the main theme of this show and, and what we're we're dissecting is that this comes down, like everything in mixed martial arts, to money. Uh, I don't know that necessarily Shinyaoki competing on Bellator is something that I would have thought would happen well, a he's year not, ago. He's, luckily, he's not just waltzing into a tournament. That would be a complete joke. Right. Uh, I, I'm a fan of him competing against a guy like Eddie Alvarez because I think Eddie Alvarez hasn't had this level of competition during his stay in Bellator. I'm a fan of Shinyaoki competing against a guy who's not Rich Clemente or, or, or just a, a middle-of-the-pack lightweight. I think he taps... Uh, a good percentage of, of everyone in the UFC who's not a top five, top ten guy. It, it's a fight that needs to happen because I think both guys need the competition. Dream doesn't really exist in the same way that it used to. To my knowledge, they haven't had a fight card even established. I mean, we haven't, you know, we've scoured the internet looking for upcoming fights for Dream. You know, I know Deep is, is doing their thing over there in Japan. A lot of good fight cards, you know, Shuto, and whatnot, there, there's no mention of an upcoming Dream card, and I think that's one of the reasons this fight's taking place on MTV2 and Bellator 66 in Cleveland. Shinyaoki might just be running out of venues and places he can fight. Yeah, Dream continuing to have probably monetary issues. I know that that was their, their major theme for, all, for most of last year, and that's why we really didn't see anything until the traditional New Year's Eve card. Uh, but hopefully Dream gets back on track and... and but then again, maybe not, because we want to see these Japanese fighters uh, venture back into the United States. And I know a lot of fight fans that don't know these guys are just going to be blown away by some of the some of the talent coming over. Well, you, you mentioned at the top of the segment, you know, what why this stop for Shinya Aoki is is there a reason the UFC wouldn't be interested? And, and I think it's a fair question. I, I don't know that he's the kind of fighter that Dana White wants on the roster uh, for a variety of reasons, namely Dana White hasn't had a huge success with Japanese fighters, uh, b- but more importantly, 
he reminds me a lot of uh, Damian Maya in a way, where where you've got a very accomplished grappler, and and if he gets away from that grappling, he's not going to be in interesting fights. Yet people want him to develop a game outside of that grappling for whatever reason. Damian Maya was coaxed into this idea that you have to be a well-rounded mixed martial artist to compete at middleweight and welterweight and all these different weight classes in the UFC. And if you're not an, a well-rounded fighter, you're just not up to par. Uh, he was tapping dudes using his grappling. And I think Shin Yaoki is a guy who can tap any lightweight out there. But Dana White has to want a one-dimensional grappler in the UFC at lightweight for his competitors. I don't know that that's necessarily someone he's going to go out of his way to sign. I don't know that Shinya comes cheap, and I think that's where there's a hang-up. Again, money. Money seems to be a prevailing theme on this show. Uh, Shinya Oki's not a guy who's going to accept a, a $12,000 you know, three-fight contract per fight. You know, He's a $50,000-plus fighter. Uh, that's just the he- the headline of that fight card. Uh, there's a lot of other good fights to, to talk about at Bellator 66. Uh, a lot of great European prospects on the preliminary card with Attila Veg and Marcus Vantanen. Uh, it's an interesting fight card, and, and you can speak a little bit to the, the middleweight and lightweight tournament semifinals. Well, and as we saw, going back to the preliminary card for a second, as we saw today uh, in Sweden, these European fighters, they bring it, man. They'll, they'll come at you with everything. They want to get their names out there. They want to put on a show, and this is their way to do it. Well, the training is always in question. The gas tank is always in question, and sometimes the weight cutting. Uh, I think a, a lot of guys, Japan and Europe, fight, uh, and, and I guess you could say you know, mainland Asia, they're fighting out of their weight classes. You look at a guy like Kazuo Masaki, who's used to competing at middleweight, even though he looked really good at welterweight. So he's fighting 15 pounds uh, higher than maybe he should. And I think that's an issue with European fighters as well. However, that being said, I think there are a lot of prospects that if they get a chance at Bellator or the UFC and they're young enough and they can develop with with good training and, and they get to into the right divisions, I think you see a guy like Alexander Gustafsson uh, Simeon Thorson uh, on the undercard of, of, of today's UFC fights in Sweden. There's a lot of guys out of Europe, and, and maybe one of these two gentlemen, Veg or Vantanen, is going to be one of those guys that just jumps out, wins a fight impressively, hops onto a, a tournament, and, and starts making waves in Bellator. And going back to the main card, we do have the semifinals for both the middleweight tournament and the lightweight tournament. In that middleweight tournament, you're going to have Brian Rogers and Bruno Santos in the first fight, Michael Falco and Vyacheslav Vasilevsky in the other one. Uh, the lightweight tournament, Rick Hahn and Lloyd Woodard, who both put on very impressive performances in their quarterfinal matchups. And then Tiago Michel and Brent Weedman in the second semifinal. The Hahn-Woodard fight we talked about a while back could actually have been the the final of this tournament had Bellator drawn it the right way. Right, and uh, I agree with that 100%. I think that's uh, I think that's your final. I think those are the two best fighters in the tournament. Lloyd Woodard looked absolutely great in his last fight. Uh, just a sublime performance for him. He kind of comes out of nowhere, shocks everybody, uh, and puts together that performance. Rick Hahn, you know, Rick Hahn is a guy dropping down from welterweight. Yeah, I think he's a guy who's going to sneak in to these lightweight tournaments in Bellator as the prohibitive favorite every time because he's just so solid and he cut down from a weight class. You're, you're noticing this season is interesting because there's a lot of good, you know, competitors competing in weight classes they had. And we talk about, you know, Brian Baker. We talk about a lot of these guys who are cutting into new divisions. Rick Hahn, one of the best, looked good in his last fight. He's going to have a chance to move to the final against Lloyd Woodard. Tiago Michel, Brett Weedman, interesting fight. 
Uh, unique style clash. I, I don't see either one of those guys making much waves past this fight. But then again, you know that's why they fight them, and, and they're not just done on paper. Anybody has a chance to win these fights. And over in the middleweights, like we talked about, Rogers and Santos, uh, Falcao and Vasilevsky. Vasilevsky still having his problems with M1 Global owning his contract and that whole mess, but he's still going to be out there. I, I'm kind of looking at Michael Falcao as uh, as the prohibitive favorite to to move on not only to the final, but also to win this this middleweight tournament. Well, I like Brian Rogers. I thought his violence in his first fight with the flying knee knockout was, was very impressive. I think he's the guy to watch out for. I, I you know Bruno Santos isn't a guy I think he should take lightly. However, uh, of all the guys in the competition, he's also probably the least you know noticed. He's probably the guy who isn't being taken as seriously. I think Vasilevsky's a wild card in this thing. I don't think a whole lot of people know enough about him. It'll be interesting to see how he can do against a guy with the offensive moves that Falco has. You know, he's a guy who to me you know it was in the UFC was doing well, uh, had a problem, got cut had a heart attack if i believe you know i read everything he had medical issues nonetheless he's making his way up this ladder it'll be interesting to see how he bounces back from from those medical woes i'm not super thrilled with the middleweight tournament semifinal but it'll be interesting as we discussed earlier to see how these guys are going to progress in case one of them gets an opportunity to fight alexander shulmenko for that title uh, we need to be following these guys, learning as much as we can about them as fight fans, and, and really gearing up. Because if we have an all-Russian middleweight title fight between Vasilevsky, read my mind. A, a, a Vasilevsky and Shulmenko, Sean Wheelock's tongue might fall out from trying to pronounce these names. It, not only that, it's just going to be very fun. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of people who may not normally tune in. Uh, you're going to get a different kind of an audience. You may have a lot of people who aren't interested at all. But for someone like me, I think for you, that's just a dynamic, interesting fight between guys that I, I don't know that you know casual fans have really paid enough attention to. And, and Vasilevsky, as I mentioned, I think he's the wild card in this whole thing. You just don't know enough about him to know if he's of the caliber of Brian Rogers or Shulmenko. Wouldn't put it past him if he was, though. The following night, we finally have the UFC's return to pay-per-view. They're bread and butter. UFC 145, you're going to have John Jones and Rashad Evans finally hooking up for that light heavyweight title. Uh, Greg Jackson is going to be in the corner of John Jones. I don't know how much that's going to really affect Rashad Evans at this point. I think that whole beef has been completely overblown at this stage. Uh, had they been able to jump on that a little sooner, then sure. But then John Jones got hurt, and then Rashad Evans got had his issues. So really, at this point, it's just a fight between two guys. And I think everybody's obviously giving John Jones the huge advantage how does Rashad Evans come out of this with an upset win? I think Rashad Evans that showed up uh, against Phil Davis is a Rashad Evans that John Jones needs to be very, very careful about in this fight. There, there's this kind of underlying theme here that because John Jones has the entire Jackson camp behind him for this fight, that there's a confidence about him, he's comfortable, he knows enough about Rashad Evans that this fight should probably just go status quo. And I'm uncomfortable with that situation for the very fact that Rashad Evans now has a chip on his shoulder. It's him against the world. And in a situation like that where he's going to go out there and look to play mind games with John Jones, John Jones has never been beaten, you know, aside from the Matt Hamill debacle. <laughs> he's never been beaten competitively inside a cage. I think the closest you and I have ever seen him come was Stefan Bonner. And, bon- and, well, and that and Machida also kind of rocked him in their fight as well. Yeah, I guess in some context, maybe, but he also worked Machida with a standing guillotine and dropped him on his head. You know, 
John Jones has never really been tested, and Rashad Evans has every means to go in there with all the vitriol he can possibly muster against a guy he doesn't like anymore. I mean, these guys have a history, and I think people are taking that too lightly. I mean, Rashad Evans that showed up against Phil Davis was impressive to me. He negated a wrestler's wrestling. He was the better wrestler in that fight, and while he didn't really get to show off his offensive weapons, you know, his his timely kicks, his good strikes... Uh, he he shut down Phil Davis in a way that makes me think he can pose problems in the clinch and with his wrestling to John Jones. The thing about this fight that's intriguing to me, can John Jones clip Rashad Evans the same way that Machida did? Because that's that's the only loss on Rashad Evans' resume. You know, I mean, we're we're talking about a guy that he had he he made the the face that we see all over the internet that's on the gifts and all sorts of stuff, and, and it's kind of become cannon fodder at this point. Because he's a of good fighter, either way, he's a great. You'd say he's a great fighter, probably the second best fighter on the planet. Here, here's here's my kind of my idea of this fight. It could easily play out like Rashad Rampage. I could easily see a grinding, boring fight where these fighters are just kind of wrapping each other up against the cage. Neither is mounting offense because both fighters are being defensive. They're being like minded. They know each other very well. And I think that's a fight Rashad Evans can actually win. I mean, I think he's got the speed. I think he's got the wrestling. I think he can get some timely takedowns over five rounds to take John Jones to the ground. I think John Jones wins this fight by going out there in the first two or three rounds and just shutting up Rashad Evans, clipping him, knocking him out, and just kind of slamming the book shut and saying, next. Does either one of them become gun-shy if they get clipped early? Say Rashad Evans hits John Jones with a flush shot. Uh, either, you know, even if it's just a body shot, does that kind of make John Jones gun shy at that point to, of kind of stepping into some of his punches? I don't know if John Jones is the kind of guy with his confidence and his cockiness. I don't know if he ever will become gun shy. And, and I that may end up being his downfall. You know, I think you, you talk about who's going to beat John Jones. And that's kind of the prevailing theme out there. Who can step up and beat John Jones? And we talk about it on the show. Not a whole lot of challengers out there. Aside from Rashad Evans and Dan Henderson... And I don't give Dan Henderson a real good chance to land his right hand because it's all he has at this point against a guy like John Jones. Aside from those two fighters, there's not a whole lot left in the division. So John Jones is looking at becoming potentially one of the greatest, if not the greatest, light heavyweight fighter of all time before he even decides to make a move to heavyweight. Rashad Evans is going to be the toughest test of his career because Rashad Evans just doesn't plain like him. And he's he's one of the best fighters in the world. I'm excited. I, I don't want to make a prediction right now because... It, you well, know, you have to. This is the last show before. Okay, if I, if I have to make a prediction, I'll go John Jones flash knockout in the first three rounds. However, the caveat to that is I honestly firmly believe if Rashad Evans can keep his chin on his head and drag this fight the distance, he's got a great shot of getting the decision. I know there's the whole... The whole trope that you have to take the title from the titleist. Uh, in this case, I, I think Rashad Evans has enough offensive weapons to win on points. And, and it, uh, the longer the fight goes, the better I'm giving Rashad Evans odds to pull off an upset. But I'm not going to predict the upset. Let's put it that way. Looking elsewhere down that card, we have Rory McDonald's and Shea Mills. Ben Rothwell and Brendan Schaub in a heavyweight fight. That's actually going to be a good one. I want to see how Brendan Schaub bounces back after the way that he was just crushed by Big Nog down in Brazil. 
Um, I'm interested in the fight because it marks the end of legitimacy for either of these guys. There was a point in time in the heavyweight stratosphere of mixed martial arts that Ben Rothwell was thought of as a guy who could be a top 10, potentially top 5 if everything fell perfectly uh, fighter. Now he's 31-8, and eight, just coming off a debilitating loss to Mark Hunt. He's a guy who... You know, this is his last chance. Uh, he, he has to either prove that he's worthy of all the hype that he was given during his his days outside the UFC when he was fighting under the uh, Pat Milicic team. The IFL. The IFL days, as they were. Uh, and Brendan Schaub is a guy who I think coming off Tough 10, he, there was a lot of hype around him, and I don't know if he was ever as good as people thought. Um, but he's 8-2, and two, and, and a loss for him would also push him really far down the ladder. So it, it, it is an interesting fight because I think the winner of it remains relevant and hovers around the mix, and I think the loser is is really close to being cut, if not dropped to the bottom of the totem pole. Would you say that the winner of this fight might actually get someone like Matt Mitrione, uh, who hasn't been heard from in a while, but was still looking really impressive uh, in, in his short body of work? I know he and Schaub were on the Ultimate Fighter season together. Um, You know, I, I know the UFC doesn't really like doing this, but I, I would put the winner of this fight up against Chet Congo. Uh, I think that Czech Congo marks the very end uh, of legitimate contenders in the UFC. He's proven with his loss to Hunt that he's not going to be a guy that's going to compete with top 10 fighters. And and I, I made the mistake of being a Czech Congo supporter and thinking Czech Congo had the tools that he could go in there and kickbox and compete with Junior Dos Santos and those guys. He just doesn't. And and it was a, it was a mistake on my part. And, and, and you know... Begrudgingly, Chet Congo is a good fighter. He boasts one of the best heavyweight resumes in the UFC's history. But he's not a guy who's going to be competing for that title. I think he's an appropriate step up for Rothwell or Schaub should they win this fight. And, you know, that that's one of the more intriguing fights on the card, which to me speaks to the volume of kind of meh on the card. Uh, you know, Miguel Torres, Michael McDonald should be a fun fight. Chad Griggs is one of those guys coming over from Strike Force, beat. Uh, Beat Bobby Lashley, I believe, and kind of yes. derailed the Bobby Lashley hype train, put together some wins in, in, in strike force, and is now fighting Travis Brown, speaking of a guy who fought Czech Congo. Uh, that's an interesting fight. John McDessie against Anthony Nojokawani is going to be a great fight. I think there's going to be a lot of punches uh, and kicks thrown that, that are going to make people wince in that fight. Those are two high-level kickboxers there. And How about your very first fight of the night? Maximo Blanco and Marcus Brimage. I know we've both we've both watched Maximo Blanco uh, in other organizations and, and have been waiting for him to, to arrive in the UFC. Is this kind of their way of saying, well, let's see what you've got and let's and putting him at the bottom of the card? Well, I think if if people don't remember, they, they should be reminded that he was fighting at, uh, I believe, lightweight against Pat Healy in Strike Force, and was just absolutely mauled by Healy, who's a big lightweight guy who probably could compete at welterweight. Maxi Blanco, uh, a guy you and I have seen for years in Sengoku, he's a violent, violent dude. Uh, if if I were a betting man and I were looking for lines on this fight, if there, you know, if he's not getting five to one odds uh, as a favorite, you know, there's something wrong. Wasn't, uh, wasn't Marcus Brimage on this last season of the Ultimate Fighter? With one Mayhem of the and... last couple uh, seasons. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a power puncher. I don't know that he's, I don't know he's a bad fighter, but you know, if we're going to talk class of strikers here, I think Maxi Blanco's on a different planet. Maxi Blanco's one of those guys. If he's not facing a big grappler or big wrestler, 
he's going to maul the heck out of dudes. And everyone who watches, you know, this fight's going to be a prelim fight on Facebook. It's going to be a dynamite fight. First fight on the card, as you mentioned, you get to go out there. I fully expect, book it right now. I'm saying it. If you're gambling or, or if you're just keeping track at home, Maxi Blanco is going to knock out. I'm not even talking TKO. He's going to knock out Marcus Brimage. I mean, that... That is one of the biggest mismatches I've seen in the UFC in in a long time. And and I don't mean that to be completely disrespectful to Marcus Brimage. He's obviously earned himself, you know, himself a UFC fights, but he's on a completely different level than Maxi Blanco. That should be a fun fight. Uh, I don't see a whole lot else on that card that excites me. What excites you? Well, I'm actually excited to see where Maxi Blanco winds up in the range between Lyman Good and C.R. Bahadurazada, I said it fine earlier. Bahadurazada. Uh, <laughs> see where he winds up in the knockout, in the first round knockout stage. You go 13 to 42 seconds. I think he could do that with Marcus Brimage. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see where Mark Hominick comes back. Because uh, the last time we saw him, he had that ridiculous hematoma on his head from Jose Aldo. And, and he's a guy that, that could use a win to get, to get his confidence back. Uh, I feel like, you know, there, there's really not a whole lot else. I mean, we both know the uh, Anthony and Jokowani story with, with the WEC. Uh, Mac Danzig and Efrain Escudero being that far down on a card, I think, is, is kind of silly. Uh, not a whole lot really to look at, but a lot of opportunity for a lot of guys to, to go look at us. We're the reason that you're watching the UFC. We're the next wave of guys coming. Uh, it, it's underwhelming on paper, but sometimes the underwhelming ones are going to be the best fights. Well, when you speak to the youth and, and all that, uh, as far as look at me, I'm the n- new wave of fighter, you're automatically talking about a guy like Rory McDonald or Michael McDonald. Uh, I don't believe that they're related. The, the spellings are different, and, and I believe that... One Rory, of them's a Canadian singer. I don't, right. I hope they're not. Well, that's good info for fight fans right there. <laughs> uh, Rory is the guy at 12-1. and one. He's facing Shane Mills, who's 14-4 and four in the, the co-main event. I, I think that's an intriguing fight for both fighters. Shane Mills kind of burst on the scene. He's, he's the kind of guy at 29 uh, from England. Defeated Chris Cope at UFC 138 and looked absolutely dynamite. I, I don't know where he stands in the pecking order at 170. But we're going to find out against Rory McDonald, who's a very, very solid fighter. Uh, a, a guy I enjoy watch. Uh, I enjoy watching him fight, rather, because German suplex of Nate Diaz at USC 129 will forever live on in my memory. He did it three times, Chris Benoit style. He's coming <laughs> off uh, two wins. You know, Nate Diaz and, and Mike Pyle, who are very good fighters in the welterweight division. His last, uh, his last loss, I guess you could say the only loss of his career, Carlos Condit, who I believe holds something of importance in the UFC. No, he he shouldn't have won that fight. Nick Diaz won. Oh, that's right. He holds the interim Diaz title. Won. So, you know, Roy McDonald's a star in the making. Uh, you mentioned Mark Hominick earlier. His opponent's Eddie Yagen. Uh Eddie's an interesting guy because, you know, he, he's been on the California circuit for a long time. And he really, he got his UFC opportunity by derailing uh, Joe Soto at Tachi Palace 10. Uh, by guillotine choke and Joe Soto for people who you know are a fan of the show a fan of mixed martial arts is the 25 year old former Bellator champion uh, in the I believe it was featherweight division might have been lightweight division now that I'm thinking about it but he, he had a horrible loss to Joe Warren and, and that became the beginning of of the title reign for Joe Warren 
Um, but since then, Joe Soto's kind of dropped off a little bit. He's he's one and two in his last three fights, and Eddie Yagen moved up the ladder with a win over him. So you talk about guys who have made names for themselves, stepped up, you know, won the right fights and taken opportunities in the UFC. You know, he, he's he's uh, his only fight in the UFC is against Junior Sunsau. He lost that fight. So this is probably the end of the road for Eddie Yagen, and I think that makes him a dangerous opponent. He's very well rounded. Fifteen wins. Five by TKO or KO, five by submission, and five by decision. So he's a guy who can look to win a fight anywhere. Uh, I, I'm I'm excited to see how Mark Hominick bounces back, and, and he's got he's got a very interesting opponent. But looking at this card, aside from some heavyweight action, the main event, and, and there are a couple up and comers as we as we mentioned. You know, it doesn't look super great on paper. Uh, I I expect the Bellator card, top to bottom, to stack up uh, and, and have the better fights. All right, and that's our show for this week. I'm Kevin Mendelson. That's Marcus Schmidley. Marcus, anything big coming up on the writing side for you? Well, I've, I've got a high fives edition of uh, UFC in Sweden and Bellator 65 coverage. I'll probably get out in the next couple of days. Should be doing some fighter interviews as well. And on the show in the next couple of weeks, I hope to have a potential UFC fighter. He's a young kid. He'll be facing Din Thomas in May. We'll get him on the show. We're not going to give away names just yet because nothing is official, but we'll break some news maybe next week on the edition of the MMA Cutman. Enjoy the fights, everybody. Hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash the MMA Cutman. Thanks for listening. I'm Kevin Mendelson. That's Marcus Schmidley. We'll talk to you next week.